Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hello and welcome to the Game Podcast from The Times. I'm Gabriel Marcotti. I am back from my holiday and I thank you all for joining us. In fact, today is a, is a, is a holiday, what they call a bank holiday uh, in this country. Julian, I'm assuming you no longer look at the notion of bank holidays with a, with a sense of wonder the way other foreigners do, right? <laughs> no, but I still don't understand why it's, a, it's called a bank holiday. What's got the bank to do with it? Because the bank is closed. True. And of course, we live in London, which is run by banks in the fi- <laughs> financial industry. With me also is George Culkin. George, I-, I understand the financial sector not quite as important in the Northeast. Do you call it a bank holiday in the Northeast as well? Well, we just call it a, an excuse to get drunk. Well, there you go. There you go. Uh, AKA <laughs> Easter Monday. Uh, also with us is, and I'm delighted to say, down the line, we have James Gearbrandt. James, you're joining us from an exotic location, is that right? I'm, I'm joining you, yes, from, uh, from an undisclosed uh, top-secret location somewhere in the uh, in the south of England. We have a really big weekend of Premier League action. The race, of course, is down to just four points. And um, that's down to what happened at Old Trafford. James, I'm going to start with you. Um Jose Mourinho put out a lineup, and everybody seemed all shocked that he put out the the lineup that he did. For for those who weren't paying close attention, uh, it, there was no Ibrahimovic. It was uh, it was Rashford and Lingard sort of up front. It looked like a primarily defensive lineup. It looked like a lineup where he was perhaps saving some people for the Europa League. First of all, were you as surprised by this as some people pretended to be? I think what was interesting about it is that he came with a real sort of tailor-made game plan for that particular game. And, and obviously, as, as it turned out, you know, Herrera was, was sort of detailed to do, as we, as we all know now, a, a kind of man-marking job on Eden Hazard. For a man who was sort of exceptionally you know, hard to beat in those big matches, he's not had a lot of success in them this season. I mean, I think he'd only won... Maybe one out of eight league games against the uh, against the top seven prior to to this one. So he came with a real game plan, and um, and you know clearly it worked. Julian, but Mourinho would say that, uh, and in fact he did say pretty much uh, that in the FA Cup he had the exact same game plan, uh, except there was I guess Phil Jones on Hazard, and they would have won that game as long as it was eleven v eleven. Obviously they didn't. <laughs> win it because I think it was still nil-nil when he was sent off but that was basically his point that this worked and nobody should have been surprised yeah and I think he, you know he was if you look at the, 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 the cup game and if you look at the game on Sunday you, you see that United set up in the exact same way and I think he got it right in the FA Cup away from home is always a, obviously more difficult than, than at home yesterday and I think the crowd was so up for it yesterday that it gave them some sort of extra gear and extra energy but Let's just forget a bit about the personal and who was left on the bench, was he brought on the bench. And, you know, I think the, tactically, in, in the system they played in with Herrera, who was always going to start anyway, doing that job on, on Hazard and why Rashford and Lingard played, you know, Lingard, as we both agree, 
you know, he's nowhere near a world-class player, but he did an incredible job, I think, on that Chelsea defence yesterday. Same with Rashford, who is closer to a world-class player than, than Jesse Lingard, without a doubt. But I think he got his spot on, and I think from the start, you could see exactly what they were going to do, and they just did it exactly the way he wanted. George, um, this thing with the man-marking, right? Uh, it's, it's the kind of thing when when a manager decides to, to, to man-mark, I think especially in... In, in midfield, you kind of walk away a fool or a king. Can you tell us, as a frequent viewer of football, why people don't why people don't man mark more often? Well, I'm based in the northeast. I'm really not a frequent viewer of football. Um, but There's a um, lot of football in the northeast of mm, different standards. You know, just of a different standard. Well, uh, no, I think you're right. I think when it works, it works brilliantly, and it did. It did yesterday. It was absolutely key to to what Man United did, but. If it doesn't work, you can be made to look very foolish. I mean, in terms of tactics, I don't know why people don't do it more often. But I think it doesn't just rely on that one player. It relies on everybody else doing their jobs brilliantly. And I suppose by not having Ibrahimovic in the team, there was more movement up front. There was less space for Chelsea to kind of bring things out. I thought it was fairly clear that Kante was... Um, was immediately sort of swarmed over by United players too, that they took great attempts to sort of cut down all the supply lines like that. And I think it's it's not just about one player doing it. It's about that being a key feature of the team. But everybody else has to has to do their job too. And it, it worked. I thought it worked to perfection. I, I want to stick with this tactical argument, though, because, Julian, when I was a kid, a long, long time ago, there was actually almost like a philosophical difference between teams that mark zonally and teams that, that man marked, usually with a sweeper. Now, we know why the sweeper's kind of gone out the window, but I mentioned this man-marking thing um, because it seems to me that if you can do it correctly in certain games, you have a tremendous advantage, especially when so much work goes to a single guy. You can you can certainly disrupt passing patterns better than, I think, more effectively than you can if you press, personally. It seems that really loves to press now. Nobody loves to, to man-mark. What's your take? Is it is it maybe also the fact that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy in the sense that nobody man-marks or no, no no defenders know how to man-mark <laughs> in open play and so you don't do it? The idea is if you man, if, if you have Herrera man-marking Hazard and following him everywhere, you take him out of the game. And it's such an important game when you have the ball in the build-up of your play that if his job is simply to just stay with Hazard the whole time, whether Hazard goes to the toilet, goes to the dressing room, goes to the left, goes to the right, goes in the centre, and you have to stay with him the whole time, then when you get the ball back, Herrera might be in a right-back position against Hazard or as a you know, left-wing position against Hazard, which means that he would be out of the game. I think that's the, the first idea. That's what Marcelo Bielsa does. Wherever your player goes, you go with him. Right. Yesterday, it was slightly different than that. But, but Bielsa is very much the exception, right? Yeah, he is the exception. You're right. Because I think it could work at times. And for example, when Marseille went to PSG and the man Marcon Pastore, who was the, the sort of hazards of Chelsea yesterday, it worked really well. On the whole of the season, the, the, the problem with Bielsa man marking is that the players get so tired after January that it all collapses. But the difference with yesterday, I thought, with Herrera, and Herrera is one of the cleverest players in the Premier League. You have to give him that is that it was not the pure man-marking of following everywhere. And I think Valencia did some very good work and so did the, the, the back three as well, helping Herrera to actually pick up Hazard in the right area so that when United get the ball back, like on the first goal, for example, Herrera was still very much part of the building play and was still not out of the game, if you see what I mean. Right. 
Do you see what I mean? That's the problem with my marking. If you really follow someone from the first to the last minute, everywhere on the pitch, then you're out of the game when you mostly when your team get the ball back or you could far too often be out of the game. And for a player like Herrera, that would have been crazy for United. Normally, you would man mark with a player who contributes less offensively, right? So that if you're out of the game, that's fine because then it's 10v10 and you still have better players and you presumably have more space. Yeah, so Phil Jones, for example, in the FA Cup game, you know, sort of man it's a logical man marking yeah, choice. Exactly, because right. the guy is not that good on the ball anyway and wouldn't have that impact on the ball offensively compared to Herrera yesterday. So I think the very intelligence bit from Mourinho and United and Herrera especially is how they man mark Hazard, but only in the key areas where they really had to man mark him and Herrera was perfect for that. And then you don't follow him everywhere for the whole 90 minutes, but you're just there in the key areas. Rory Smith, uh, formerly of this uh, of this parish, uh, tweeted yesterday to sort of ask, you know, did, can anyone remember the last time you know such a kind of effective man marking job was was done in a big game? And, and actually, there weren't that many answers coming back. I mean, one that people remembered was uh, was Jason Park on on Andrea Pirlo. But the fact that you know that there were kind of one or two individual examples that stuck in people's mind kind of suggests that it's not something that we see an awful lot. I think also it worked because of Chelsea's attack, which I think, for all it's, that it's been exceptionally effective this season, is very reliant on Eden Hazard for its spark, particularly in the second half of the season. Diego Costa has been very subdued. Pedro, I think, has had a good season, but he's the kind of player who I think plays very well when the team is playing well and not doesn't necessarily kind of have that ability to... You know, if you can shut down other parts of the team that are functioning well, you maybe don't have to worry about Pedro so much. So, for you know, whether, for example, a man-marking brief would work as well against, say, Tottenham, if you were to man-mark Ali out of the game, well, then you've still got to worry about Eriksen or, or, you know, the Kane. So I don't know whether it would necessarily be as effective against other teams, but it certainly worked well yesterday. George, uh a lot was remarked. People are used to seeing Antonio Conte jump around and be passionate and animated. Uh, instead, he looked subdued. He looked positively sad afterwards, and he said that it was his fault because he wasn't able to to transmit the the necessary uh, enthusiasm uh, and intensity to his players. Now, incidentally, I watched Gary Neville, who I find to be very astute. After the game, he almost seemed like dissatisfied with Conte's answer, and he said, "Look, maybe it's it's a language thing that maybe he gave this explanation." Um, because he's not speaking his first language. Now, I've heard Conte said the exact same thing in Italian as well. Um, so whether we buy it or not, this is obviously the message he wants to get across. Yeah, and he put it all in, he put it absolutely all on himself, didn't he? Um, the fault is mine. I didn't understand the situation. I mean, it's not it's quite a remarkable thing for managers to say, but I suppose it's another way of taking the focus away from his players and putting it onto himself. I mean, it does relate to what we're talking about, man marking and stuff like that. If your other players are playing well and if you have other game changes in your team, it doesn't necessarily matter if one person was marked out of the game, but too many other parts of the team were misfiring and were controlled by Manchester United as well. And I think that's the that's the alarm. It's not just about you know, finding this crucial weakness in the Chelsea team and that sort of everybody else can do the same thing because I don't think that would work. It wouldn't work every week. But it was the fact that they looked pretty, well, hopeless is too strong a word, but they looked off-colour 
um, in too many too many other areas of the of the pitch as well. I mean, I I think that what he's doing there is, you know, is putting the pressure on himself um, rather than on his players, which is which is fair enough. Um, but yeah, it, we don't we don't hear that too often. Costa, by the way, three goals in the league since the turn of the year in the Premier League and against Swansea, Hull and West Ham. And like like James said, it's just not good enough. And when he's like playing like he is yesterday, you play with 10 men and it's just not good enough when you go to a place like United. If I was Conte, I, I don't know what you guys think about this, but I would be a lot more worried about the attack than about the defence. I mean, I'm not kind of massive fan of the take that, that, that the back three has been found out defensively. I mean, partly because you know, they they were forced into that reshuffle right before the start of the game where not only did you have to replace a player, but, you know, Azpilicueta has to move out and go right to the other side. And Zuma is obviously a very different type of centre-back to Azpilicueta. It was something like 0.8 goals conceded on the expected goals. So I don't think the defence was torn apart by any means. The attack, I think, is much more worrisome because they were completely shut down. I don't. Did they not have a shot on target? I think that's right. Time, for the first time um, in 10 years. And Costa, uh, I mean, as you say, Julian, he's just he's he's offering very very little. And and what is worrying from that point of view is that Conte, for whatever reason, doesn't appear to trust Batshuayi whatsoever. Really, that's the only explanation I can find for how little he's featured this season. To me, that that is much the more worrying aspect. Moving on to uh, Manchester City, uh, they win three 0 at Southampton. James, you were there. Claudio Bravo in goal, um, which is nice to see. It seemed to me like it took them a little while to get going. It definitely did, yeah. I mean, um, Claudio Bravo made a save. I mean, not he didn't just play. He actually kept the ball out of the net on, uh, on one occasion, which was, uh, which was quite something. But um, it did take them uh, a little while to get going. They're a little bit ponderous and over-elaborate in the first half. But in the second half, I, I did actually think they played very well. De Bruyne, who had struggled a little bit in the first half playing on the wing, as the game kind of got a bit more stretched and Southampton got a bit tired, was, was very effective. George, uh, in the end, City broke the ice when Vincent Company scored. Company seems to be one of those guys who, who everybody seems to like, um, even, even fans of opposing club. He doesn't really have many enemies. And given what he's been to, given the fact that when he speaks out, he's often eloquent and, and, and intelligent. I mean, it must have warmed your heart even, right? <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, he's a great defender and he's been a really good captain. It's just a shame that he's got a body made out of broken biscuits. They have been very dependent upon him and they've suffered when he's not when he's not been there, which has been far too often. I think that was only his eight. What was it? His eighth appearance this season, or something like that. Um, and they've missed him. And I think with a fully fit company, they would be in a very different position. But a fully fit company is something that hasn't been around for a long time now. So that is something that you know needs to be addressed with some urgency in the summer. That John Stones does need a more reliable central defensive partner. I think. But I think company comes has always come across as a decent fella as well as a very good as well as a very good player. Is this another thing where we need to put it in like the list of things that Pap and maybe Chiki Bagiri Stein got wrong over the summer in, in in believing that company was going to be fit all season long and and they could play company in stones or or company Otamendi possibly. I think there's been a huge will for him to 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 be back and fit and ready and and ready to do a full season. But I, you know all the all the available evidence suggests that. 
uh, he hasn't been for a for a long time. You know what I think was was quite scary is if you looked at the the city bench. Pablo Zabaleta was like 53, can't run anymore. Fernando, who I thought you know. I don't know, going on holidays. Raheem Sterling, fair enough, started the season well and then not sure what happened. Kolarov, the big willy, Caballero, your friend. Ian Acho and Alex Garcia. This is not a bench for a team that wants to win everything, that has potentially the most money to spend, that has the best manager in the world. I thought that, that was scary. Kulkin could have been on that bench. Marcotti... <laughs> Gearbrand, Lauren, you know, it was like fan on the, you know, we're talking about those players. Now, come on, it's just like... Well, and Yaya Torre playing, who wasn't even in the manager's plans for... <laughs> yeah. Then true. again, you could point out Gundogan and got injured, but then again, no, yeah, who would have expected Gundogan to get injured, right? Yeah. How could we yeah, possibly yeah, have done? Yeah, no, no one could see um, that coming. I want to ask you about Southampton because they're 10th at the table. They've had a horrendous run of injuries. Mm-hmm. They lose Virgil van Dijk, of course, who who some people made it seem as if he was their entire team at some point, and then you find out that, hey, you know, Maya and Stevens can actually play a little bit. But how would you assess Claude Puel? Is I, he... I love him to start with, okay? So I'm going to try to be objective. I, I can understand some frustration, and I saw James Ward proud um, when he saw his number on the, the fourth referee board to be substituted after an hour. And I don't know, I can't, I'm not a lip reader, but I'm, I'm sure that, you know, why he was saying on his lip was not very nice to Claude Puel because once again Puel loves those early substitutions there was no need I thought Walpros was okay maybe not the best but he was by far not the worst in his team and you know Buffal came on and Shenlong came on you know as well at, this, at, at that time and then Shenlong came off and then Shenlong came off Puel has to understand that this you know this is not Nice as well this is not those young players I mean Walpros is a young player but he's not a young player for Southampton people and for the fan and even for his status in that team. I think that's where maybe he has to improve next season is, is in his man management of you know what you do and how you do and with who you do it. Especially that, he, he, you know, if it worked out on Saturday, we would have said, oh, brilliant substitution. But the fact that it didn't work out and it hasn't really always worked out for him to do those kind of things. And that's where I think the frustration comes from, you know, fans and, and even players uh, with his sort of management that, you know, he's, he's a bit special, you have to say. James, are you going to be as hard on Claude Puel as, uh, as, as Julian? I think when they're not playing well, they tend to look quite lightweight. And I thought they looked a bit lightweight against West Ham in, uh, in that match. And that was when Oriol Romeo was playing. You know, without Oriol Romeo at, at the weekend, they looked really quite light in, in, in midfield. But Puel is a builder, so just give him a bit of time. It, things will come good or better although like we said it's, it's a good season 10th you know a final a, sort of a good run in the Europa League that crashed out at the, in, in the last few minutes dying, dying minutes but he's a builder and I think this is a very very important summer coming up because again the, you know Van Dijk is going to leave and, and maybe another one or maybe two more but but then he that's where he's very good at is building in those kind of situations so I, you know Southampton fans please give him a bit of time I went to interview uh, Adil Rami um a few months ago, um, who obviously played under under Puel at, at Lille, and he absolutely raved about Claude Puel. You know, he said he was a great manager, but but also he said, you know, he's a real he's a real fighter. You know, he's I think he described him as as you know in a complimentary way as, as a sort of as a madman. You know, he's kind of he's so intense. You know, he's a he's a real fighter, and of course that was news to me because you never see that from Puel in his in his public persona. 
he doesn't transmit that. He's, you know, he's incredibly softly spoken, which, you know, is, is obviously, you know, nothing to reproach him for. But I, I just think, according to what Rami said, he's so good behind the scenes at energizing players. I wonder how much he kind of energizes fans. Maybe I'm being unfair, but... I, I... Claude Puel is 55. He still trains with his player. At Nice one day, he broke his foot by... Uh when he was taking part of an exercise of training with the players. And at the Euros 2012, he was out of a job, so he was, he was a pundit. He played with the, 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 the French media team. We had a media team at, at the, the Euros in Ukraine. So he played with us. So I, I played with Claude Puel, which I'm very proud of. At the time, he was 50, I think, or 51 maybe. And um, on his watch, he, he calculated how, how many kilometers he ran in that game against the Ukraine media. And believe me, Ukraine media were, were I think we won 12 nil. I mean we had Robert Pires in our team as well and Claude Puel but he calculated how many kilometers he did anyway there's that thing in the first half where he get dribbled past by one of the Ukrainian guys there was no it was nothing there was, it was not, not made, there was no humiliation or anything he felt so angry he made a point in the second half every time he had the ball pretty much to go and dribble past that guy and then scored an absolute screamer towards the end. It was just the guy is so competitive that even like a, a football match between journalists, he, he didn't want to lose. He wanted to run the most and he wanted to make sure that the guy who dribbled past him would never do it again and that he would do that back to him. The guy is so competitive and, and had that hunger, I think, that he tried to transmit to his players. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Let's talk about the great Northeast since we had the privilege of having George Culkin with us. Uh, now, viewed from far, far away, i.e. inside the M25, it looks to me like Newcastle good, Sunderland and Middlesbrough bad. Um, let's start with Sunderland because you, George, suggested that Maybe this idea that David Moyes is a long-term appointment, even if they go down and blah, 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 might not really hold water. Well, it's a new development for Sunderland because obviously we know that they have scrambled across the finish line in the Premier League for the last four or five seasons by changing managers or head coaches. And it's it's worked in that sense. It hasn't worked at all in terms of building foundations or bringing value to the club in terms of players or having sort of anything to build on. This time it was supposed to be very different, but um, it's been exactly the same except with the absence of the uplift at the end of the season. In some ways, it's exactly what Sunderland need. They need to rebuild. They need to start again. They need to have a sense of identity and meaning and what they're here for 
all those things which have kind of dissipated over the last few years, they've been rubbish for a long time now and they've got worse and they've got older. I partially think that the idea is that they just have to get to the end of the season and absolutely start again. And that's why there isn't sort of much chance to sort of do anything differently because those tools aren't at David Moyes' fingertips. What that means, though, in the short term is that it gets very difficult for him because there's no sign in anything that he's done or said that there's something to build on, there's something for fans to latch on to. It's been miserable. He's been very sort of downbeat. And when they go down, and it is a case of when they go down, they will not be going down with any momentum behind them or anything that feels like a plan. And it will be a case of starting again and the problem is is that if the mood in the stadium on Saturday was a reliable guide when fans did turn on him for the first time it will be very difficult for him to sort of build momentum from that point. David Moyes did not have a lot of time to prepare for the season and when he was when he was appointed and plus everybody laughed at him for taking all those weird United players on loan. Um, would he be motivated to to go down and, and, and to rebuild and kind of go back to his roots? I mean, he, he did it with Preston. Obviously, you're playing in the championship, but you're still Sunderland. You still have the stadium. You still have the crowd. It can't be that hard. And you have, I think, some very good players. It can't be that hard to go and, and, and rebuild well, and get, I, I would, get I would excited, no? With, I would disagree with that completely. I think it's very hard. I mean, I think it's very Why? hard in, in terms of, well, in terms of, the. I think it's been proven to be very hard by the number of clubs that have failed to bounce back at the Uh first time. Excuse me if I jump in there. Go on. This is something that people repeat endlessly. Ooh, once you go down, it's hard to go back. Oh, look at Leeds and Blackpool and whatever. It's not just, it's simply not true. At the first attempt. At the first attempt. It's it's simply not true. I think in... At the first attempt. All right, I have the numbers. I, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but you can look them up and take this up again on Twitter. But if you look at the, the teams that go down... The numbers are skewed because you've got teams that went down that were horrendously run or had overspent or whatever, like, like Blackpool, like like Leeds, like QPR. But teams that go down and are properly run, they actually do pretty well in terms of coming back up. Um, you had it with Burnley. You had it with, with Hull City. You had it with, um, with West Ham. You had it with QPR the first time. So... It's not that absurd, right, for them to come... No, 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 it's not absurd. I'm just saying it's not easy. I think you can look at Norwich, you can look at Villa, who spent a lot of money... Um, I had an ownership the change, but I mean, yeah. The, well, Sunderland are up for sale, so Sunderland are up for sale. Wait, are you allowed to say that? Does he not Does he not get angry when you say that anymore? Because no, I, I, I think it's been like this for five years that they've been up for sale, but then whenever you said that, like... They would get annoyed. Say, no, we're not for sale. Ellis has committed. Well, long- no, it's been it's been shown that they're up for sale, and they've talked okay. about that. They've it, it, right. it has been talked about publicly. So they're I can say sale, that Sunderland are up for sale without are, Ellis are, Short getting annoyed. They are available for sale. Okay, let's say that, <laughs> right, which, which, which means which makes them the same as everybody. But anyway, so the, the, there is uncertainty about the ownership of the club. The squad is not good. There's a lot of people out of contract. It's a failing football club. It's been a failing football club for a long time now. It's not starting again from scratch, but it's not too far away from that. So there's not a lot to build on. And so you're placing you're placing trust in David Moyes and Martin Bain to sort of get that right, but with a backdrop, which is very uncertain. So, you know, 
I, I hate comparisons, but I'm going to make one. You know, you look at Newcastle last season and they went down with momentum. It was a very strange situation, but they went down with momentum because of Benitez staying there. And Benitez staying there meant that the whole makeup of the club was transformed in theory. And so it, so it proved. And they also had, you know, a big financial cushion. Now, none of that, none of that applies to Sunderland. There won't be a lot of money. Um, so can I just jump in on that one? Yeah. Why not? When they sold Van Anholt for a lot of money, um, if they need to get some more, they'll have the parachute payments, which will be the biggest parachute payments ever, right, at this stage. Yeah. Um, if they need more money, they can probably sell Pickford, yeah. right? He'll have a market. And and so are we sure? Well, that- they've, 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 been, they've been at the very – well, I think I'm saying that, I'm saying that from, a, from a position of a little knowledge is that I think there has been – that discussion has been had. There are not going to be untold funds to spend – Next season, yes, there will. Be, there would be, uh, there would be leeway with people leaving. People like Pickford would almost certainly leave. Um, Kone would almost certainly leave. But I don't think that brings them a huge amount of money. There will be automatic wage cuts for a lot of the squad. But the the wage bill, um, the last published accounts was something like the seventh biggest in the Premier League, which is extraordinary given how terrible they've been. That's part of it, and. There's too much uncertainty about about the whole squad and about the whole club to say with any kind of certainty that they will be in a strong position next season. So it's a leap of faith to say David Moyes' track record at Everton is such that you can say, yes, in theory, this is exactly the kind of manager that Sunderland need and have needed for a long time now. What I'm saying is that in practice, there hasn't been any sign of that so far. There are reasons for that and there's a context for it and there are a lot of mitigating factors in Moyes' favour but there isn't much in a positive sense to say, yeah, I've seen something there, whether it's a style of play, whether it's putting faith in kids, whether which hasn't happened, whether it's, you know, an essence of what Sunderland should mean. I think that might come in the summer but there hasn't been anything so far and that makes it very difficult for him because once a stadium turns. There will be the break of the summer, but once the stadium turns, it can be very difficult to bring that back. All right, let's try to be a little bit cheerier and talk about Middlesbrough. Um, <laughs> but let's just take a step back because when Aitor Karanka left, and, and I always thought that was kind of a weird situation because wasn't there a situation earlier this year when like, or, or maybe it was when they were getting break. Maybe it was last year. I don't yeah, remember. In it's, the last season. Well, when he, when he kind of quit and then didn't quit. Um, yeah. So this time around, obviously Jose Mourinho was was quite upset. Um, there were rumors being put around that um, what I'd like you to comment on because I was hoping to have you on, but which is that uh, all of this is down to the evil Stuart Downing and the even more evil Patrick Bamford who got Karanka the sack. Now I've had people tell me this on Twitter. A, can you confirm how much truth there is in this? And B. What was Patrick Babf? I mean, Downing, I understand, club legend, came through the ranks, blah, 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 plays all the time. But Patrick Bamford, I think, has marginally more minutes for for Middlesbrough this season than Julian Lawrence has. So why did this poor guy get dragged into it? That's certainly not my understanding of it. I mean, Downing... So Patrick Bamford's off the hook. Well, Patrick Bamford hasn't contributed <laughs> in any way, shape, or form. I do wonder if Patrick Bamford actually exists. I do. I've never seen him. I've never seen him. Never seen him foot playing. Never seen him on match of the day. I, I, I hear those things that he signed for eleven million or something. I don't think he, the guy exists. 
I think Middlesbrough, when you were talking about clubs going down, you mentioned Burnley, and I think Middlesbrough would be in a much stronger position because I think they do have a backbone to the to the squad. I think they are well run. They have a brilliant academy. They um, have a sense of who they are. There's a huge shame, I think, because Karanka did brilliantly to get them there and to turn to turn the club around. If and when they go down, they will. Most people will shrug their shoulders and think about them as being a boring, a boring football team who've drawn a lot of games, who've been sort of quite difficult to beat. But that's been all there is to it, and I think there's there's reasons for that. Karanka was very controlling of the club in. PR terms, they didn't go out and sort of sell their story enough, and I think that was largely down to to him. I think that's a shame. I don't think he responded to pressure very well, and we saw that at the end of last season, and we saw it sort of around January. I think he took it out on people in and around the club. There were too many fallouts. I don't think he sort of lost the dressing room in a conventional sense, but when he left, there was a big easing of pressure and I obviously that's not been translated into results but I think there was a sort of crushing pressure on the on the dressing room and that had become unhealthy if they go I'm sure players like Ben Gibson will probably leave but I think there would be enough of a core from the team that got them up last season and then before then that almost got them up the season before to think that they would with a bit of sort of prudent spending that they would be in a decent position to, to bounce back again. I noticed you avoided the question about whether Stuart Downing got Karanka the sack. I'm assuming no, I don't, think you don't have any confirmation of that. One no, or I don't think that. I don't think that at all. You think it's just nasty rumors put around by? Yeah, I mean, I think he's Downing and Karanka had fought, had fallouts, and he thought he should have played more, and he he sort of came quite close to leaving in January. I'm trying to cast my mind back. I don't think they had an easy relationship, but. Steve Gibson is not the type of chairman who takes decisions on managers based on what one player would say, no matter how influential that player is. And I've spoken to Gibson at length, both before and after that decision. I don't think that came into it at all. I don't think the fallout between Downing and Karanka in the week that led up to his dismissal did Karanka any favours, but that's... I don't think that's the same as saying that Downing got him sacked. Finally, on Newcastle, we don't often talk championship, but like you said, Newcastle are definitely getting promoted, so you're not really <laughs> a championship club anymore, so we can speak about them. Tell us about the Raffolution. I have followed nothing because I don't get a chance to follow the championship. It's been very nice to watch Newcastle win games of football, which hasn't happened for quite a long time. And I think I've always, I'm kind of, very anti this feeling that it's the Premier League, in spite of what you've just said, that it's the Premier League or nothing, and that somehow being in the Premier League is has to be the be-all and, and end-all. And, you know, we talked about Sunderland, they've hung on and hung on and hung on, but to what end? Just to do the same thing all over again. And I think there has been a value in Newcastle going down in the circumstances that they have done, and to remember how to win games of football again and for the stadium to see a winning team. Tell me some good Newcastle players that I remember, might not have heard of. Well, Dwight well, Gale? Do you remember Dwight Gale from uh, no, Crystal no, Palace? I, I, I Crystal erased, Palace. I, I erased them from my memory once they're no longer in the Premier League. No, of course, I know Dwight Gale is. And I know he's, 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 he's done well. Yeah. Well, the, 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 one of the things that I've liked most about this season is that it's been a team that has been built to get up. You know, there's been a lot of talk in the last sort of few weeks, months, oh dear, well, you know, this team will need a lot of changes if they go up. Well, okay, that's fine. You know, it will. But um, 
my favourite signing of last summer was Daryl Murphy, who joined from Ipswich for Former whatever it was. Sunderland star Daryl Murphy, yeah, Republic who, of Ireland international. Yeah, yeah, it was thirty something when he joined, three or four million quid, and he's not played very much. But for me, he was a signing absolutely designed for the championship, and I love that because in recent years Newcastle have not been about team building; they've been about having this transfer model, which was partially responsible for them going down, was also partially responsible for them being able to spend a lot of money in the summer, so fair play in that sense. But I think, you know, I think we worry about the Premier League when Newcastle gets the Premier League. However, uh, Dwight Gale has become the first player since Alan Shearer to score 20 goals in the season, albeit in the Championship. Matt Ritchie has probably been their player of the season come from Bournemouth, dropped down from Bournemouth, and John Joe Shelby has been incredibly influential. Um, so, is, is what's Rafa like? Is he more chilled out, or is he? Is, is, has he been, is, is he been in good mood? Like, yeah, I think he, he hasn't has had his. Yeah, I think no, he has been, and it's really about what he represents. And in this sense, it's quite old-fashioned because under Alan Pardew and McLaren and John Carver, there was this sense of Newcastle being a small club. There was that famous quote from people that ran the club about being the best they could be pound for pound. Pardew talked about how difficult it was to compete with Southampton, to compete with Swansea, for example. Now, Benitez has come in and talked about potential and history and size and stature and all those things which are really quite old-fashioned, but that Newcastle fans haven't had the chance to sort of think about and and he's encouraged them to lift their heads and I know that this is all kind of very emotive and and so on and so forth but that was important because it's been a very cold dry football club and then suddenly you've got someone there who is talking about meaning and passion and potential and that has been rebuilding that has been very very important it's very delicate because it all hinges on him and so I think it'll be interesting what happens in the summer. I'm much more confident of him staying than in January when they did hit the rocks a little bit. But yeah, fingers crossed things are in a pretty decent place. George, I know we said earlier it's never easy to go back up, etc. It would have been a failure if they hadn't got back up. You agree? Because if you look at the team, you know, we talked about a manager who's a great manager. And if you look at the players in that team, they're all they're all Premier League players. I know it's hard to say, you know, Premier League players, but if you look at the team, for example, they drew against Leeds, pretty much all of them could get into a team between 11th and 20th in the Premier League. So, would have been seen as a as a failure if they hadn't gone up. And you know, yeah, I think I think it's that fine margin. I think you know, if they hadn't or if they don't go up, it's a failure. But if they do go up, I think it's a success. And I think it doesn't matter whether it's first or second; it's a success. I don't think there's been anything guaranteed about it. You know, I think. I've watched a lot of the football. It's it's gruelling. I mean, it is a gruelling division. Mm. There have been moments when you would expect them to sort of get away from the other teams, and it's never it sort of never happened. You know, there are a lot of good, strong, solid teams in that division. I I think you're right. I think because of the perception of it and the amount of money they spent and Benitez's reputation and the squad they've got, it would have been deemed a failure if they don't go up. But I think you also have to recognise that bearing in mind the history of it. You look at Villa, who are a club of great stature and who've spent more money um, and have been nowhere near it. You look at Norwich, how they've struggled. Um, 
you know, there are no guarantees. So if they, if and when they do go up, I think you have to celebrate it as a as a success. We miss Villa and Dr. Tony. We wish him well. By the way, is he he's a doctor of what? Anybody know? Sure. No, I, no. I, I always wonder about that. I, I want to make a rule that I know if you have a PhD, you're allowed to call yourself a doctor. But you know what? It's really not that cool. Cool PhDs don't walk around calling themselves doctor so-and-so. So unless you're a medical doctor, you really shouldn't call yourself doctor. Well, it's just my rule. Is when, you know, when you fill a form on, on the internet, whether you, you book something or what, and you, you have to put your gender, often you can put doctor. I often put doctor. Well, you put doctor, doctor as a gender. Yeah. No, no, but you know what I mean. You, you just know, said like, gender. No, doctor but sometimes it's like Mister, Mrs., Miss, Master, and sometimes you even have doctor in the uh, the thing. That I often put doctor. I always put master. I like that. <laughs> <one>. <laughs> All right, enough Northeast. How about some quick hits instead? Tottenham make it seven wins in a row by beating up Bournemouth and are now just four points back. Julian, even Jansen got on the score sheet. Are they the best team in the Premier League right now? As Antonio Conte says, they are. They are. Antonio was right. <laughs> It's not just the, the seven wins, it's the way they play, they're great to watch. They're... Helps when you play Bournemouth, but... No, but still, you know, there's, seven, there's six wins before the one against Bournemouth, and, and not every time, but most of the time, they played really well, best defence, I think second best attack now, uh, better goal difference than Chelsea and Antonio Conte. Kane is back, first start since the injury, he scores as well, Dele Alli doesn't score, and no Lamela, no Rose as well, so yeah, I think they're, they're brilliant right now. West Bromwich Albion lose to Liverpool 1-0, but Tony Pulis tells us he doesn't like it when his keeper goes up for corners, even when his team is losing and there's almost no time left. George, I don't understand Tony Pulis in general, but I really don't understand his point of view on this one. Why would you not send your keeper up for a corner when you're 1-0 down? Well, I completely agree with with you, Gav. I was at Carlisle on 8th of May 1999 when Carlisle beat Plymouth to stay in the Football League with Jimmy Glass yes. scoring in the final moment. And um, it was the most dramatic and brilliant occasion I've ever been to as a football journalist. And afterwards, Michael Knighton came out with that brilliant comment. I believe in aliens. I believe in Frankenstein. I believe in God. Most of all, I believe in on-loan goalkeepers scoring in the 91st minute. <laughs> Speaking of Liverpool, Roberto Firmino, who some people keep calling him Firmino. Where does that come from? Why? People keep saying Martial. How many times do I need to say it's not Martial? It's a, like a sir, just a sir. So it's? Martial. Martial. And it's Firmino, not Firmino either. Anyway, he came up huge once again. And uh, once again, there was no love for Daniel Sturridge. Uh, James, will we remember this as the week when Liverpool sealed their top four finish? And how will the Sturridge saga end? Well, I think the, uh, the last two results for Liverpool have been... Um, you know, really great, gritty uh, wins. Their season is on, on such a knife edge because I think, you know, they could finish third and, and I think that would be a great season for them um, given the kind of relative lack of depth of their squad. Equally, they could still finish fifth and, and not make the Champions League and then the whole kind of Jurgen Klopp project is sort of, you know, under renewed scrutiny. But if I had to put my neck on the line, I think they probably will make the top four now. As for storage, I don't see a particularly happy ending to that saga, Liverpool at least. Should have sold him in January. Well, maybe. I, I think he is facing uh, actually a not dissimilar situation to what Jack Wilshere faced, where he just needs, he, he, he's, you know, he, he is very much facing, he, he's going to have to go and prove himself, prove that he can, you know, stay fit for a whole season, which in fairness to Wilshere, he, he mostly has done. But his kind of, his very career, his ability to kind of, you know, 
play professional football week in week out is is in doubt and uh, I don't see him proving that anew at Liverpool Shall we remind James Gerbrand that the quick hits are 20 seconds only not two minutes I didn't hear the sound effect Oh no that's a lie that is a lie everybody in the whole country heard it even Georgia in the northeast. Uh, on a sadder note Leon's match um, away to Bastia was abandoned after trouble with the home support Julian tell us more yeah, really sad uh, sad day yesterday, I think, for French football and Corsican football and football in general. Uh, at the end of the warm-up, uh, the Lyon players were attacked by the Bastia Ultras, who came on the pitch first to try to have a fight with Memphis Depay, then with uh, Mathieu Gorgelin. because, just to put the other side forward, did they argue that Memphis Depay provoked them Yes, that was the idea. So it, we, we need a little bit more than 20 seconds but after the first the, the reverse fixture in Lyon in the first half of the season the, 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 the then Bastia manager François Ciccolini said as you do in his uh, uh, post-match press conference now they would have to come to our place and we'll sort this out like we do as men as Corsican and you already knew at that time there would be trouble and Corsicans never forget and they took that excuse in a way that Memphis um, provoked them to attack the Lyon players in incredible scenes. If you haven't seen them, please go and check because it's, it's just incredible. All over social media. The game should have never started. It did start 15 minutes later. And at halftime, as Anthony Lopez, the, the Lyon manager, was, uh, the Lyon goalkeeper, sorry, was walking from his goal towards the tunnel in the dressing room, the Bastia, his job is, um, he looks after the stadium at Foriani. This guy went up to Lopez to apparently tell him to hurry up, to go back to the room quicker. The, the score was nearly at the time. Ended up a, a fight between Lopez and this guy. Then more ultras came on the pitch to attack the rest of the, the Lyon players who were still on the pitch, who then went and helped their goalkeeper. And there's that scene of that Stewart, a stadium Stewart, with the you know the, those orange bibs as your Stewart, running onto the pitch, trying to actually hit Mukhtar Diakabi, the, 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 the Lyon defender, trying to kick him and punch him in the face. There were punches, exchange, kicks. It was just, I don't know, something incredible. The, the game was stopped at halftime, obviously. The, the, the Lyon players had to be escorted away from the stadium because the Ultras were waiting for them outside. I think the game would be won by Lyon. Bastia would surely be docked points. That's them going down now. They will have uh, the rest of the season behind closed door, probably the start of next season in the second division behind closed door. It's just incredible. It's not the first time we talked about Bastia Ultras before, but this time went far, far too far. We had the Balotelli racial abuse earlier in the season by the same Ultras and so many things that it's just disgusting. The nerve to complain about James going on for longer than 20 seconds. No, 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 but come on, come on. This is not storage and top four Liverpool. I said that I need a bit more time because this is a really serious thing. <laughs> we need breathtaking it. hypocrisy. We need the <laughs> appropriate context here. Uh, Everton overcome Burnley and for the time being are sixth with a three point lead over Arsenal. Uh, though the Gunners do have three games in hand, which I'm sure they'll win all three. Uh, George, is this Everton's ceiling, at least for now? Yes. Thank you. One, one second. There you go. There you go. That's 25 points for Colkin. Uh, Leicester City draw with Crystal Palace 2-2, but Craig Shakespeare now has a centre-back crisis on his hands ahead of the Champions League quarter-final return leg with Atletico Madrid, in which 
By the way, they're only 1-0 down. Uh, Robert Huth is suspended. Molawag is injured, obviously. Uh, Johan Benoit limped off and is a doubt. And Wes Morgan has missed the past six games. Also, Marcin Vasilevsky, in addition to being the size of a small building, uh, isn't registered to play in the Champions League. Um, this is not too clever from old Shaky, is it, James? I don't know how much it's, it's Shakespeare's fault, in fairness, but I mean, they're definitely... They're, they're facing a bit of a crisis, certainly. I, I think Ben Aloan has been a bit of a revelation. He's done extremely well, considering he's barely played before coming into the team. I mean, I don't know what they will do if all those players are out. I mean, I, I was at a game earlier this season where Christian Fuchs played at, at centre-back in a back three, and, uh, and it wasn't pretty. Do we think Morgan's going to be fit? I don't know. But yeah, they're in, uh, they've got problems. Amati can probably play a centre-half, yeah. but... but... Simpson can't, right? I don't think Simpson can, no. I mean, it's, it's only Atletico Madrid against them, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's only the like, biggest game in, in the club's history and, since yeah. last spring. It would be sad if this ends up being the reason they go out of the Champions League. Gab, one for you. There was a lunchtime Milan derby on Saturday and it's bound to have far-reaching implications. Do tell. Well, there's an excellent column uh, on this uh, uh, subject, especially from the from the Milan end and their new their new Chinese owner uh, Li Yonghong. Uh, column written by me, incidentally. But uh, the match itself was spellbinding, end to end stuff. Inter taking a two 0 lead, Milan coming back, uh, ending up equalizing with the last kick of the game. Christian Zapata striking the ball, hits a crossbar. Gary Medel hooks it away on the line. Then goal line technology flashes up, uh, and it's uh, and it's two two. But the big thing, obviously, Milan have now been sold um, to this Chinese businessman. There's a ton of questions. I don't want to get into too many financial issues, but I think they're kind of playing with with fire here. Uh, if all these reports coming out are are true, um, they they took out a 303 million euro loan with a 10 percent interest rate, which is which is absurd. Uh, they've come out and said, well, but the Glazers did it. Yeah, but the Glazers were at Manchester United, who were hugely profitable uh, and are still hugely profitable today. I mean, in our club, who over the last three years have lost well in excess of 200 million euros, how they think they're going to turn around is beyond me. I, I'm worried a little bit. I really hope the authorities uh, take a long, hard look at this before they go and uh, and approve the sale. Right, that's all we've got time for today. Many, many, many thanks to my excellent guest today, Julian Lawrence, who made the long trip down from far north London uh, to London Bridge on this Easter Monday. George Culkin, who gave up. Uh, I, I'm told, actually, Easter Monday is, is, is one of the loveliest days of the year in the Northeast. Is that right, George? Absolutely correct, yeah. Well, then we are privileged at the sacrifice you made in uh, giving up so much of your day to spend it with us. And also, James Gearbrandt still in hiding from angry Scottish fans uh, down in his secret bunker somewhere on the south coast you can sign up uh, for access to the times just 12 pounds for a 12-week trial excellent value for money uh, i think and you can access all our content including um including highlights uh, of uh, premier league matches and champions league matches too i believe uh so you can also press that subscribe button wherever you choose to download your podcast and leave a review on itunes if you're listening on an apple device but please only if it's a positive review Till next time, bye-bye. The Game is brought to you by The Times. For more information and more podcasts from The Times, head to thetimes.co.uk.